Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. We're seeing Republican models of 18th century government failing at the moment. The system isn't working. So if we're going to have a Republican debate, let's not just have a minimalist one because it ain't going to win. And if people want constitutional reform, I think there needs to be more ambition in it. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Australian Politics. I'm Paul Karp, political reporter at The Guardian. I'm filling in for Sarah Martin, her chief political correspondent, and politics editor Catherine Murphy, while she's on leave writing the next quarterly essay. I'm here today to analyse the data from the Essential Poll conducted every fortnight for The Guardian. I'm speaking with Peter Lewis, who's the executive editor of Essential Media. As the media coverage has been dominated by the news of Queen Elizabeth II's death recently, we start things off by talking about all things monarchy. But we then move on to discuss a range of topics, including the prospects of an Australian republic, what we can expect from the upcoming federal budget, and how the Albanese government is handling its time in power. This conversation was recorded on Tuesday and was moderated by Ebony Bennett, the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute. Here is Ebony now about to ask me the first question. So, Paul, if I can just come to you first, obviously quite a historic time uh, in the news business, but lots of politics happening. How has Guardian covered the the death of Her Majesty? Uh, Well, we obviously have a huge presence uh, in the UK and lots of reporters, so we've been very uh, dutiful uh, subjects uh, reporting on the the sadness of her passing and the proclamation of the new king. Uh, I think we've got a, had a pretty good balance. If you look at our site, the containers, Queen Elizabeth II's passing was, was the top container for about the first three days. But then if you came to the site about four or five days after, you'd get headlines and news extra and then plenty of Queen content if you wanted it. But it <laughs> wasn't... It wasn't, it was opt-in. It wasn't, it wasn't wall-to-wall all the time. Yeah. And obviously there's a lot happening in politics apart from that. As I mentioned, the budget's not too far away. I believe you've just uh, finished a press conference with the treasurer. What did he have to say today? Uh, Yeah. So Jim Chalmers and the finance minister, Katie Gallagher, have announced uh, that the budget, the final outcome uh, for the last year, 21-22, is $50 billion uh, better than expected. They are trying to play down um, the significance of that by saying that although it's better than expected, a lot of the costs that we avoided in that year were are going to be pushed into future years. So, if you know um, PPE and other COVID uh, vaccines, 
spending on infrastructure slower than expected. That might be a saving one year, but it's going to be costs uh, in future years. But there's also a significant underlying improvement in terms of terms of trade. Uh, so just getting uh, better prices for, for resources that we export and that uh, that increasing like the tax tag. So a, a bit of a boost to the budget, but it will still be in deficit by $30 billion that year. Yeah. And kind of just taking a big picture view of the last couple of weeks, how much has, I guess, the death of the monarch uh, derailed things or to what extent are kind of things getting back to back to normal now in politics? Uh, well, she, she passed away on what was um, the, the, the Friday in between two sitting weeks. And that that second sitting week was going to uh, include the introduction of the National Anti-Corruption uh, Commission bill. And so uh, last week, uh, when when Parliament was was uh, cancelled for a fortnight out of respect for Queen Elizabeth II, there was a discussion about whether or not that was going to delay the National Anti-Corruption Commission. It delays the start of uh, an inquiry by a few weeks. There are some crossbenchers like Jackie Lambie who are happy to push consideration of the bill into 2023. So uh, there was some uh, some discussion of that, but but really. We're going to come back for condolence motions on Friday and then next week, Monday to Wednesday, we're going to make up the rest of the sitting days, including um, the introduction of that bill. So while while some uh, Republicans might be scratching their head about, oh, what's this cancelling parliament for two weeks business, it, it hasn't had a huge impact on the agenda of the government. It's just something that they needed to explain to, to slightly bemused uh, Australians, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, Pete, obviously uh, you've polled a couple of questions in the Guardian Essential poll this fortnight relating to uh, Her Majesty's death. Shall we uh, Shall we dive in or do you want to give us a bit of a snapshot before we get into oh, it? Oh, no, I, I think a couple is being kind. We've done blanket <laughs> polling coverage to reflect the blanket media coverage to try to work out. <laughs> what's going on here and largely because it did drown everything out so we thought it was an opportunity to gauge where um, Australians were um, in this moment in history. Look, the first thing I'm going to take you through are a number of different leaders and, spoiler, it will go into royal family just in terms of favourability ratings. Now, favourability is different to job. Normally it's job approval that we ask, do you approve the job? Albanese or the Prime Minister's doing or the opposition's leaders doing. Some of the people we're talking don't really have jobs, so we thought it was better to, to run a favourability rating on a couple of... So our leaders, a couple of world leaders in the royal family. And so what we do is we... And again, if you're listening to this on the pod, this will sound a bit esoteric, but um, essentialreport.com.au if you want to go and have a look at the slides. For each leader, we gave people effectively an 11-point scale. So 0, 1, 2, 3 are negative, 4, 5, 6 are neutral, and then 7, 8, 9, 10 are positive, and then clustered those around positive, negative, neutral. So much like we're finding with approval rating, the net favourability rating for Anthony Albanese is pretty positive, 46 um, positive, 17% negative, 31 neutral, Peter Dutton, not so great, 23% positive, 33% negative, with another 34 not having an opinion, also 3% never heard of him. Um, and if you go to the next slides to world leaders, it sort of you can start playing a bit of a game. So <laughs> Joe Biden is a, a 30 positive, 28 negative. Vladimir Putin, 
Not doing so well in Australia, though. It is interesting to note, 9% favourability, 9% positive amongst some Australian voters, 77% negative. Um, But what is interesting, if you go to the next one, the Queen's ratings are basically a mirror image of Vladimir Putin. So (laughs) the Queen is um, at 71% favourability, 8% negative. Charles, 44, 21, positive to negative, with a a lot of people on the fence with um, Bonnie King Charlie. Going to wait and see um, how the rain goes. Uh, and then, the, and, and then the next generation, a bit of difference there too. So William is more popular than his dad, sixty-three, ten negative. Whereas Prince Harry, the second son syndrome, God knows what's going on there. I don't <laughs> get the whole Meghan Markle thing. Forty-two, twenty-two, positive, negative, but still, you know, double the positive to negative. So, <laughs> I, I think one of the things that I think we assume is that there would almost be this rejection of King Charles from day one. And I know that part of the ARM playbook has been the Queen's death is the moment to double down on a republic. I don't think that quite lines up. We might can talk a bit more about the republic a bit later. Yeah, in the midst of, you called it an orgy, I've called it a bacchanalia um, of mourning there is a reflected goodwill towards the succession of the crown. I just... I just think the whole thing's been played out without any sense of context whatsoever. And I suspect if they hadn't produced that Netflix series, it would have been even weirder. <laughs> That's a good point. The role of the crown is certainly uh well, one of the most watched series. I don't think anyone would have had any understanding, or at least younger generations, if not for that series. So it was a brilliant piece of propaganda <laughs> um, with really good storytelling as well. Yeah. Um, The favourability there, um, you know, politics is often, uh, you know, a popularity contest poll, not so much with the monarchy, as uh, as we were saying, we might get stuck into the Republican uh, implications of this in a moment. But just to stick, I guess, with the pageantry um, for a second, I mean, there has been weeks of kind of all these formal ceremonies and the formal morning and world leaders, um, you know, flying in for the ceremony. But it does suck you in a bit. I was just saying before, you know, I'm a Republican, but I really, I did sit down to watch the funeral last night. I'm a, a bit amazed that the TV stations at least mm. haven't run out of things yet to talk about the Queen, but I guess there is plenty to talk about across a 70-year mm. Rain and the- although I've been using it as an opportunity to finally get through Breaking Bad, so <laughs> <laughs> nothing else the to watch. The history that her reign has covered—it's quite something, Paul. We probably won't see something similar again in our lifetime, certainly. Yes, and um, you know the the parade of world leaders uh, and 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 all the formalities—it is—it is a spectacle, and it does. It does have both a private significance of, of um, you know, the, the the family in mourning and subjects in mourning, but it also has a, a sort of, yeah, a propaganda purpose of transmitting to people that there's this continuity and that, you know, one of the benefits of monarchy is that, you know, while there's no meritocratic process to pick amongst job applicants, you at least know who the uh, the next person to have the job of monarch is is going to be. But can I just say it's been it's uh, the bit that I think has been most icky has been the the scent. It, it's that sense of manufacturing consent. The entire story has 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 imposed a national mood, and then you saw the pile on on someone like 
Maureen Faruqi um, when she questioned, you know, the British Empire's contribution to misery in her homeland and just the absolute views cannot be held in at, at this moment. And I, I, I found that quite disquieting, I must say. Yeah. In 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 fairness, it was it was mainly Pauline Hanson uh, leading the attack against <laughs> against Marine Faruqi. I mean, Prime Minister Albanese has, when he's been asked about, oh well, what what do you think about First Nations people who focus much more on on her role in the history of colonialism, and so they they don't experience mourning for her passing in the same way necessarily. I think he's been very respectful that people have different opinions and different feelings about it and that that's fine. It's just that his job is to yeah, reflect the Australian government's respect for her. He, he maybe has carved out a little less space for the Republican viewpoint. He's been quicker to shut that down. I, I can see how you would feel that, you know, there's this undertow where everyone must be equally sad, uh, you know, is the prevailing mood, yeah. Unless he's come up with the genius Republican play, which is when you've got a kid that asks for a lolly over and over again, you give them a whole pack until they're sick on lollies and then they want to move on to something else. So that is the other theory that Albo has just given everyone so much royalty that we can now sort of move beyond that. Well, I, th- I think that the promise was in this term to do the, the voice to parliament for, for First Nations Australian to achieve constitutional recognition. So in many ways, he didn't have a dilemma when he discovered that the Queen had passed about whether or not to hit the big Republic button or not. There, there was no dilemma there because it, by the own ter- terms that he'd set out, the quickest that he was going to move on to that debate is going to be in, in the next term of government. And so that made playing the, the respectful, uh, you know, now is not the time role actually quite easy for him to do because he, he had this uh, more important priority that he promised first to point to. Yeah, having said that, it has really raised the issue of whether or not Australia should be a republic once again. As Paul mentioned, really the chief argument for the monarchy seems to be continuity (laughs) and, you know, stability. I'm not sure how persuasive that is to people, but you were looking into this question of whether or not we should be a republic in the polling. Mm. This is obviously a long-term trend line. Um, There's actually been a dip up in the people that oppose a republic since June, um, three points, which is kind of on one level margin of error. But there is, from from those numbers, it has not kick-started a republican urge and the backlash that we might be feeling isn't being felt more broadly. What, what has shifted is, um, and we haven't trendlined that, so strongly support and strongly oppose those numbers have both gone up in the last cycle. Fewer people in the somewhat support, somewhat oppose. So for those that are listening on the pod, apologies. So we've now got 22% who are strongly in opposition, 21% who are in strongly support. And so that's a more polarised debate than it was before the Queen's passing. Mm. And uh, then Charlie, not. 50-50, we didn't give a don't know option. We forced people to make a choice and they've gone down the line. If you go to the next one, what's interesting here is the age difference. So if you are 18 to 34, you are 68 to 32 saying, no, Charles III should not be Australia's head of eight, uh, head of state. If you are over 55, it's almost a reversal, 64-36 um, thinking that 
Charles should be in the big seat. This is the last one. So guess what? Young people wanted a public holiday, much more than retired people. 61% support the public holiday. 60% think it's all right for our PM to go over for the um, the big show. And 38% were okay with the suspension. Can I just say one more thing on that, though, that I think these numbers say that this sense that there's a natural progression towards Republic are problematic. There isn't that groundswell. In The Guardian today, I suggest we probably, if we, if you want to get enthusiasm around constitutional reform, we have the voice as the first step of that process, but it should really be a broader discussion about the way democracy is working um, in the 21st century. We're seeing Republican models of 18th century government failing at the moment. The system isn't working the way most people would like to see it work. And I just do reference Jamie Susskind, who's a UK lawyer who recently put out a book out, Digital Republic. And I just think to frame what is a Republican debate, he writes, in essence, to be a Republican is to oppose social structures that enable one group to exercise unaccountable power, also known as domination over others. They reject the institutions of absolute monarchy, not just the flaws of particular kings. They fight for tenants' rights, not just for more magnificent landlords. They demand legal protections at work, not just kind of bosses. So if we're going to have a Republican debate, let's not just have a minimalist one because it ain't going to win. And if people want constitutional reform, I think there needs to be more ambition in it. Yeah, That's it for me. I'm off my high horse. I'm happy not to mention the Republic (laughs) again for the rest of the hour. No, but I do think, Paul, uh, you were right about the role that the voice plays. That's really the the primary um, question of constitutional amendment that Australia is is looking at. It's what the Prime Minister has prioritised as well. Um, And I think this really kind of showed up that actually that is the more urgent question for Australians to deal with. But uh, but uh, similar concerns about whether or not, you know, the case for change has been been made there as well in that conservatives are are saying that they think that Albanese is in in danger of of, of not achieving the voice because uh, of not giving enough detail and not giving people enough enough reason to vote for it. So there's going to have to be a big campaign um, to explain that change to people and to to generate excitement. Um, As a progressive person, I'm, I'm excited about that opportunity, but there's a lot of people that are going to be uh, voting for something that are not, not uh, directly affected by it. It's not like same-sex marriage w- where the message was to vote for, you know, your neighbours and your friends. Uh, I, I mean, hopefully people do know enough Indigenous Australians that they recognise that that would be an important thing for them to be included in the constitution and a voice to parliament. But for a lot of people, it's a bit more abstract uh, than that and they don't they don't know what it means yet. Yeah. Yeah. A long way to go in that debate, certainly. Um, Coming back to Parliament next week and the Federal Integrity Bill uh, is scheduled to come into Parliament. How is that shaping up? I know a lot of independents have been concerned about uh, whether or not it's going to be strong enough and there's still quite a lot of support in the Parliament for it. How's that debate looking to shape up next week, do you think? Well, we're definitely going to have a debate about um, toughening the bill up uh, because the Greens have some ideas about uh, including political donors and not just third parties that uh, contract with government. Helen Haynes wants stronger whistleblower protections. So we're definitely going to see an argument about toughening it up. 
but we might also see an easier pathway for the government to pass it with the coalition support, which would make all of those debates about amendments um, pretty pretty short. So we'll get a month or two uh, for a parliamentary inquiry. A, a joint committee is going to examine uh, that bill. And then, you know, they're still aiming to have a vote in the November sitting of parliament to, to try and pass it this year. Um, so there's, there's a few months for the debate to run for the crossbench and the Greens to make the case it should be tougher. It will just be interesting to see what Peter Dutton does. For most policies, he's a Tony Abbott-style opposition leader of Oppose Everything, but this is one of the few things that he said, yep, we should do it. What, you know, Helen Haynes, I like the Helen Haynes model. So this is something that could conceivably pass with Labor and the Coalition on the same side. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the issue of uh, climate change just briefly, uh, there's been a bit more discussion about Labor's safeguard mechanism in the last couple of weeks, um, making mooted changes uh, to that. This is the parliament with the climate supermajority. We are kind of headed towards the next COP in November. How much is climate going to be on the agenda um, in this next week of parliament and I guess as we, we head into the, the end of the year? Well, Labor has got their 43% emissions reduction bill through, but uh, the Greens have signalled that they're going to use the review of the safeguard mechanism to argue that, you know, there shouldn't be any more uh, fossil fuel projects. So I, I think it will continue to be a debate. There's the electric vehicle tax changes that are, that are still before Parliament. There are Fossil fuel subsidies uh, today, my colleague Anne Morton had a story that there's 1.9 billion subsidies that Scott Morrison promised for the gas-fired recovery that haven't been formally committed yet by the Australian government, so they could be scrapped in the October budget. So, you know, getting the target legislated is one thing, but there are going to be continual uh, climate debates through this term of parliament. Pete, I just wanted to get a reflection from you. We're a few months, you know, into Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's government now and a few curveballs like the death of the Queen. You've been tracking approval, but how overall do you think he's travelling and, you know, is navigating um, these things as they come at his, his government? Creating a long-term government is a marathon, not a sprint, but you'd have to say the government's found its stride. I think its model of government of not trying to manufacture division for short-term politics but take heat out of issues for long-term objectives um, has worked really well. The optics of the job summit were terrific. As Paul said, his handling of, of the Queen's passing has quelled any sense that he was going to play politics with this. Au contraire. I think there's a few minefields coming. I think the voice will be really challenging and he's really staked a lot on that. And I still think that this stage three tax issue is just the landmine that's there. It's, you know, I'm going to do some polling over the next few weeks because I don't think we're describing what's actually going on properly either. This is a flattening of Australia's progressive tax system, which will be a long-term change to our system. Um, and I totally get why the government didn't stake that as a line in the ground before the election. But, gee, it's a hard thing to work through. 
Um, it's almost, I think, as we said here before, a magic pudding now. Anything we don't have mo- enough money for, that, well, why are we flattening the tax base? And it's not just about tax cuts for the rich. It's a restructuring of our system to look very different to the Australia we've had for over 100 years. Yeah. Uh, Paul, any reflections on stage three tax cuts before we go to questions from the audience? I think you can see uh, the change in rhetoric and the beginning of repositioning in that they've now they've now stopped making any arguments that they're that they're good for their own sake. Um, the only argument they will make for it is that um, we we promised we would do it and to try and restore trust, we want to keep our promises. But they have started talking about you know, the October budget is going to be a bread and butter budget, but in future budgets, we're going to have to have a conversation about what quality of services Australians expect and, uh, you know, the revenue base uh, to pay for that. Uh, Phil Lowe um, was making the point that it's, you know, bizarre that with unemployment as low as it is in terms of trade as favourable as they are, that we still uh, are in deficit. So I, I do think that there is plenty of time, you know, before the next budget to, to have a conversation about it. It's just whether Anthony Albanese's personal disposition is that you must die in the ditch over every every promise um, taken to an election. And it's a really good point, isn't it? Do you maintain trust in government by flattening our progressive tax system or do you have to break a promise to restore trust in government? That will be interesting to think through. I think uh, Jackie Lambie has reversed her position from voting for the tax cuts to now being one of the ones calling for them to go. Has there been any blowback to her? Has she suffered any huge hit to her reputation? If anything, I'm seeing more people angry at her that she voted for them in the first place and very few people upset at her that she's now changed her mind in favour of, of scrapping them. So if if that were to play out, if the government were to do it, then then they could survive the opprobrium of people earning, you know, two hundred thousand dollars plus, quite quite easily. But people have a different standard for crossbench senators than they do for government, and it would be a betrayal. All right, going now to questions from the audience. First one I've got here is from John Knox. Um, he's picking up on the subsidies that you were just mentioning, Paul. He says we need to reduce emissions fast, but we also have a budget emergency. Surely, removing fossil fuel subsidies could help with both of these. Are we likely to see any movement or reduction? to fossil fuel subsidies in the upcoming budget. Do you want to just go into a little bit more detail? You were talking, there's a story today about a uh, billion dollars kind of promise that hadn't been actually spent yet or offered yet. Do you think it's likely that we'll see anything like that in the budget, Paul? Uh, well, so that that funding was for things like uh, road upgrades for the gas industry and carbon capture and storage. I think that there is some... Uh, leeway for the government to to say that you know these will are boondoggles that won't actually work uh, or, or that will make the problem worse. But then their their own position is not to oppose new fossil fuel uh, projects. So for them, it, it's it's going to be difficult to calibrate what what forms of government support can they um, successfully characterise as being, you know, pork barrelling and favours for one sector and for particular regions and which, uh, which forms of subsidy are they going to be accused of, um, you know, 
hastening the destruction of, of mining and energy jobs if they if they get rid of. So it, it's it's quite a difficult um, consideration for them. Yeah. Uh, the next question I've got is from Heather DeCruz, who says, how might the failings of republics today, like the USA, India, France, et cetera, be avoided by an Australian Republican movement? It's alarming and while the Republic aspect isn't a precursor to the rise of authoritarianism, it is what most people see as a feature. Mm. Uh, what do you, what's your response to that, Pete? Look, I think it's a really good point and it's the real change in atmosphere from 1999 to when the last referendum failed, which was a very minimalist do things as normal model. And, you know, since then, obviously, we've seen the rise of Trump, we've seen a number of other Republican systems where the system's effectively being gamed um, by populist leaders who then have this mandate um, as individuals to exercise power beyond what was probably comprehended originally. So this is why I think that if we are going to have a debate about a republic, we need to define what a 21st republic should look like. And I'm really interested in If we are going to have this debate, it is not just whether our titular head of state is called the Governor General or the President or whether it's elected from a small group or appointed by the Parliament, but what makes a republic is the voice of the people and how do we create a legitimate voice for people in these democracies that were really set up at the tail end of the 19th century, emerging from republican movements that were totally Um, reflective of their time. But the challenges they've got now, big tech, global capital, geopolitical shifts that undermine the value of a nation state and a disengaged populace are a very different set of challenges. And, And the nature of republicanism is to ask the question, how do we put power back in the hands of the people? I'd argue a voice to parliament is a republican discussion, citizen-initiated referenda, deliberative democracy. There's a whole lot of models that we should be talking about rather than just sort of locking in the current model with a different name on the coat of arms. So the fact that we're not going to rush to a referendum in this term of government, I think is a good thing because the numbers, if you compare the numbers that support a republic, which I think is 43, 32 or something with the number of people that want integrity in government, which is like 80 to nothing, like there is a sweet spot there. And I just think that there's some terrific people working in the ARM, but I feel like they've just been sitting on the 99 referendum and getting ready to roll it out again, rather than recognising that the best part of two and a half decades have passed in the world is a very different place. Yeah, Paul, um, what are your reflections on that? Pete's raised a, a couple of really good points there. Certainly I think Donald Trump has done a lot to highlight the fact that democracies are very fragile by their nature. They don't just chug along healthily by themselves. They are subject to bad faith actors and uh, and other movements. Do you think that's a lesson that a Republican movement has taken on or that Australia needs to, I think, think about more seriously? Well, the lesson from the 1999 referendum is that you, you can't uh, allow a split on the preference for uh, the model of Republic to, to cruel the whole exercise. Uh, and so there are risks uh, if, you know, if a, a leader were to say that they think that direct election model would be more popular than um, the government appointing them, that there'd be risks that you'd lose some some votes from people that just want 
the most stability as possible and just rename the governor general to the president and keep the same system without direct election. There have been different suggestions for how to solve this over the years. I remember Bill Shorten in opposition was suggesting first to have a plebiscite on the principle of whether or not we should have an Australian head of state and then if that gets um, majority support to then uh, winnow it down to one model to put to the people in a referendum to change the constitution. I think we should probably be considering a parliamentary uh, republic model where, like, the nominee would have to pass both houses of parliament. That way, um, you know, the the popular will rather than just what the, the prime minister and the cabinet is reflected, but it's a, a choice being made through their representatives rather than a direct election, which then creates the conflicting mandates and the the, the sort of problems that, that you might experience that you've described. Yeah, and presumably uh, we've got the the check and balance of the Senate uh, in that type of a, a process where it's not necessarily dominated by the major party who's in government. Uh, the next question that I've got is about the budget from Ajaya, who says the budget numbers discussed by Paul are extremely interesting. Do you think this will help the approval rating of Labor or the coalition? Um, and another person, Alan, asking about predictions for the budget, um, key features to look out for. Paul, what should people be looking for in the budget? I think people do care about smaller deficits and uh, getting back to to getting back to surplus, uh, but it's not it's not going to happen for for a long a long while yet. But a lot of these things are not uh, the product of conscious government decisions. So commodity prices being higher, infrastructure projects being delayed, uh, so that the spending happens in a later year is a lot of that was sort of stuff that's taken out of their hands. Um, so I don't think they'll reward the coalition or, or Labor specifically for it. Um, I, I think people are going to be paying more attention to what conscious decisions are made in the October budget. Like what what do they rule is is waste and rorts and take out of the budget? And is there any additional cost of living relief in addition to the childcare package and the cheaper medicines that they put into it? I think those are the decisions people will, will be judging the government on. And just to follow up on that, um, Jim Chalmers, I think has kind of been alluding to they're seeing this as as a two budget strategy more or less that there's key things for October, but May the May budget isn't that far away. Yeah, anything to kind of see across those things. So obviously this one kind of focusing on delivering budget promises, but in terms of like inflation, cost of living, those types of things, how much is he setting this up as kind of yeah that that two budget strategy? Well, I think you really said I I think they want to contain people's expectations because um, it, anything that helps with cost of living is pumping more money into the economy, and the biggest problem we have at the moment is is inflation, and they don't want to give the Reserve Bank uh, more reason to worry about that and more reason to lift to lift interest rates. So they're allowing the the petrol excise halving to expire, and to, so that's going to be twenty three cent tax going going back on petrol. So I don't think they're going to be pumping lots of money into the economy. I think they're looking for for programs to kill to make savings and say that they're, they're waste and rorts. They've said the next stage is we're going to have to have a conversation about funding services and that will be for, for next year and for, for the rest of the term. Hopefully by then inflation is under control so 
not every spending measure is is going to be um, causing concern of adding to inflation, and they have more more latitude to move. Pete, do you think inflation is the key danger for the Albanese government? Like, what will they be looking to get out of this budget? Do you think? Yeah, like inflation goes straight to the kitchen table on cost of living. I'm interested in the budget on the extent to which um, resource exports are still underpinning the budget, the degree to which we're a diversified economy and or still just a, you know, a big pit. Um, I think the second thing I'll be looking at is whether the costs on the NDIS are stabilised. Um, I think there's a third piece on hospitals and the amount of money the government's putting into hospital funding. And then, of course, there's the rollout of the government's election promises. I don't think this is the budget, and to Paul's point, this is almost the financial statement as opposed to the budget of what the economy has inherited. As we know, traditionally, you discover the black hole, except I think this time the black hole is pretty um, real and unsurprising to anyone. But I don't think you're going to be seeing lots of sort of one-off checks or payments. Like I don't think we're at the part of the cycle where we're trying to to throw those sweeteners. But um, early learning, hospitals, disability, aged care, like there's a pretty full funding agenda from services, which is, again, maybe that two-step. We talk about what we can afford with this budget and then we talk about what we need to afford into 2023. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask about uh, the next question from Carl Stevens. Pete, I might throw this one to you first. He says, do you think the opposition's apparent strategy to just say no, for example, on the climate legislation and the decision to boycott the Jobs and Skills Summit is a politically clever one? I think the temptation of a first-term opposition even after what was quite a crushing defeat, is to still act like you were robbed and that involves saying no to everything. It took Labor a couple of terms to build nuance into their model of opposition, if we're honest with ourselves. It's hard. It's hard to be in opposition when you're used to having the power and then you've just got no resources. They haven't, oh, there was a really interesting story today. They haven't even, doesn't look like they've even started doing their election review on what actually went wrong. After 2019, six months in, there was a very clear strategy of what Labor needed to do they're, they're to delaying, win. They're delaying its release, but they are definitely working on it. They haven't interviewed Morrison yet, but they are. They have been receiving submissions and and doing other interviews. So so it, 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 it is being worked on. It's just they're delaying the release until after the Victorian election. Thanks. Thanks. That's that does make a bit more sense. Um, but you know, they're a rabble. They've lost one of their points of gravity, which was their their moderate wing. There's two things you can do at this point: just do the reflex of saying no and at least stay in the cycle, or sit back and let the government establish itself. And I, I don't blame them for trying to create some friction in the system. I think it's unsurprising. Paul, any other any other comments on that? I guess before we move on to the next question, only that they're they're ninety percent just say no, but there there might be a few things they can agree with the government on. Certainly, um, playing hardball about the voice, um, Peter Dutton was suggesting at the Minerals Council the other week that the, that the voice might result in vetoing agreements between local indigenous groups and resource companies, which is not something that it does. So 
they're certainly playing hardball on on some of those big issues, yes. Yeah. And uh, in terms of that review being delayed, how are things internally at the moment for the opposition with, as Pete said, so much of the moderate faction gone and certainly Peter Dutton seemed to make a few early captain's calls. Have things kind of calmed down or do you expect them to kind of be inflamed again once we do get that review of the election? Well, yeah, he's made captain's calls about the climate target um, and he he tried to settle the moderate wing by saying, oh, well, we might have a higher target next time and we'll review it. But while they're reviewing it, including, you know, whether to have nuclear power, Dutton's out giving speeches saying, you know, nuclear power is great. I, I just think that the moderate faction is too small for there to be any real consequence uh, for for Dutton when he engages in that sort of behaviour. And, uh, you know, when they were in government and they only had a few seat majority for for two terms, um, it only took a few people to kick up a fuss or in the conservative wing to bring, um, you know, Turnbull down. It didn't take many people to threaten to dissent uh, to, to achieve a, a different internal outcome. And then there are so few uh, moderates left that they, it, what would they do to um, to give Dutton a headache, go on afternoon briefing in a sitting week? I mean... <laughs> Can I just make the other point that this opposition doesn't even have the capacity to oppose? They they cannot, they do not have a majority or any workable way of really blocking things in the Senate. Labor needs to work with a number of crossbenchers of the Greens, but there, there isn't a real trigger there and they, um, they're they well short of the line in the lower house. Yeah, it's a good point. I, yeah, I, I think they want to just oppose things and then hope that the Greens set such a high price for Labor that Labor's dragged to the left or that the Greens, um, you know, do a CPRS and join the coalition in blocking something. I, I think they're they're just going to keep opposing things in the Senate and hope that that sort of um, dynamic collapsing um, cooperation between the progressive parties. Um, before we go, Paul, uh, there's a lot of crossbenches, as you mentioned, as well as the Greens being much uh, bigger in numbers as well across both the lower house and the upper house. I think at the perhaps at the last uh, poll position we talked about um, the housing policies from Max Chandler Matha in the Greens, putting the focus back on renters just to stick with, I guess, the, the cost of living issues that we've been raising in the context of the budget. How much is housing shaping up to be a big issue for this government, whether or not it's it's a big issue in the budget? Oh, absolutely. Uh, they, they, they've made the promise to, you know, create tens of thousands of um, social and affordable housing where, you know, it's more like hundreds of thousands or millions that are needed. They are working to try and leverage more money from superannuation to to invest in, in housing construction. But really, it's, it's such a difficult uh, problem because, a lot of the issue is land supply and zoning rules at the state level. A, lo- a lot of it is tax measures that they think contributed to them losing the 2019 election at the federal level, like negative gearing <coughs> capital gains tax. So, um, you know, there aren't a whole lot of levers that they feel comfortable 
uh, pulling, basically, even though everyone agrees that we need more housing to, you know, prevent rental stress uh, and, 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 and homelessness. Pete, anything uh, in response to that? Yeah, look, I do think that um, the status of renters is a massive sleeper, both at a federal and a state level. It talks to people's real experience a lot more than, you know, and the housing affordability frame has shifted. We've been doing a bit of work on this in New South Wales. Labor's got a social housing policy, which again could be something that starts rolling out through the budget. We know in Victoria there was a big push in social housing. It's it's crickets up here in New South Wales at the moment, but renters' rights, access to affordable housing and social housing that puts downward pressure on the rental market seem to me to be key um, drivers that both major parties just are missing at the moment. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening to our recording of our live show, Pole Position, hosted by the Australia Institute. You can take a look at the slides discussed during the webinar on the Essential Media website. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo. Miles Martignoni is the show's executive producer. I'm Paul Karp. Sarah Martin will be back with you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.